Women Making Waves. Not that I do this every year. In fact, I don't remember the last time I did this, but I am actually clearing up the house. Your house is always pretty clear, though, isn't it? I mean, it always looks very Mm. presentable, your house. Well, you're very kind, Linda, but no, no. I, I suppose because it's our house, I know where things are. So when people come round... I'm sure this is what happens with most people, that I put things that I don't want to see in the house that are a bit under, I put them Mm -hmm, in cupboards. mm -hmm. So when you have, you must know this, So when you have people around for dinner or just in the day for lunch and you think, oh gosh, that room, you know, when Mm. you just stuffed everything in. And I think for my own benefit, I like to put it away so that, the house is tidy. Do you not feel like that sometimes? Uh, well, yes, but then you end up with a load of stuff in cupboards. In yeah. the back of my mind, that starts to irritate me as well. All these things that you've got yes. in cupboards, because that's not tidy either, is it? But anyway, that's what I've been doing. Most of our children are left home now and they've all got their own places. But I've had to get them back to the house because they've left stuff in the cupboards. And I've made them come back for a weekend to sort it out. That was really satisfying, but it was also very stressful because they didn't want to come back and sort it. So the young don't want to sort out. I want them to start with a fresh start. Well, they'll have to do it at some point, won't they? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This reminds me, actually, there was a book that came out a few years ago by Margareta Magnusson. It was The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, Mm. which is, I think, what you're doing at the moment, actually. Yeah, but you told me about this and I really don't like the title death cleaning i just have death a cleaning yeah no stop it i don't <laughs> like hearing that word the death cleaning i know what you mean and i know where that woman is coming from i absolutely mm-hmm. because i had an epiphany about it that i didn't want to leave any of our children with that utter mess but i'm not doing it for death cleaning. i'm doing it for my own satisfaction is that not the same, I suppose? Mm-hmm. I think you are, really. So it, this book, anyway, the full title is The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, How to Make Your Loved One's Lives Easier and Your Life More Pleasant. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'll go with the last bit. <laughs> and this is all about these cupboards, because yeah. she says, who do you think will take care of all that when you're no longer here? And this is apparently aimed at people at the end of middle age. <laughs> Yeah. Or okay. sooner, or sooner, CZ, or yeah. sooner, okay. um, well or said, later, yeah. if you're late to the late to the game. So you get rid <laughs> of all the stuff you've accumulated that you don't need anymore. Nobody else has to do it when you're, you know, gone. When you're gone, I know. But anyway, that it has been really, really therapeutic, I have to say. Mm-hmm. So it's a big declutter, really, It's a isn't big it? declutter, of course it is, because we renovated the house and then we, we then put everything back in. In the cupboards that was in there. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Dusted it down, put it back and in. And is that the same yeah. for you, Linda, or you just find that you are ultimately tidy? Oh, there's some things I would really struggle to get rid of. And I know I don't need them. What was it we were saying the other evening? We, we were out for dinner and someone said, if you pick up something and the object doesn't fill you with joy, then you should get rid of it. That's absolutely right. You've got to take something and hold it in your hand. And does it give you joy and mm-hmm. sparkle, wasn't it? Does it fill you with sparkle? Oh, is that? Yes, yeah, joy, joy and sparkle. sparkle. So, yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. One to remember, Linda. And on that note, mm. hearing from Lucy Broadbent about Ted Lasso, what do you think Ted Lasso would have done? I think he would chuck the lot. Or he'd get someone else to do yeah. it for him. I noticed in that programme, he didn't do very much himself. He got everyone else inspired around <laughs> to do all the doing. So we're going to be speaking to Lucy Broadbent, um, who's written a book called 
What would Ted Lasso do? Ted Lasso, of course, the television program, which has been a massive, massive hit. Everybody talking about it. And we've both watched it, haven't we? And it's absolutely brilliant. Who's our other guest then, Susie? Oh, the wonderful Katie Searle, who was up until recently the senior controller of the BBC News. Very interesting lady, very fascinating. What she had to say was quite interesting. She has gone on to do other things now. She has. And I think one of the really interesting things about Katie, and uh, she'll, she'll be telling us about this, is how she got to where she got to. And I think it should inspire absolutely everybody when she, uh, when she talks about her background. Absolutely fabulous. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. We are delighted to welcome Los Angeles author and journalist Lucy Broadbent. Lucy has contributed to many publications, not only in the US, but the UK and Australia as well. Lucy describes herself as someone who fell out of the lucky tree because it was all she ever wanted to do and writes about some extraordinary people, many of which are Hollywood's most famous. Indeed, extraordinary people were the inspiration of her first two novels. But here's the thing, Lucy's latest book, What Would Ted Lasso Do?, is inspired by the extraordinary TV series, Ted Lasso. It's a comedy about an American soccer coach in London. Lucy's book comes with fabulous research that offers incredible insight on how the TV series delves into many life's issues that can be turned into positive outcomes. Welcome, Lucy, to Women Making Waves. Thank you very much for having me. Why did you want to write this book? I'm in a, what they call here, a parking lot. And I've been watching this TV show, which I absolutely loved. It was during the pandemic, wasn't it, when it came out, this TV show. And I'm in a parking lot and somebody crashes into my car. I'm just sitting there. It's stationary. And normally in that sort of course of events well there might be a few rude words let's just say and I might have been a bit angry about it so I get out of the car and I'm suddenly there's this sort of vision of this tv show comes to mind and obviously I've been watching too much television because I think to myself well what would Ted Lasso do and he is this lovely character who when bad situations happen to him he chooses to react in a positive way and this tv character had obviously got under my skin so I'm terribly nice to this other person I've got a great big dent in the side of my car. And actually, it turned out to be a a rather frightened old lady. And rude words would not have been the right thing. And I walked away from it. And it was all all right. It was only a small dent. It wasn't the end of the world. I just walked away feeling so much better about myself than if I'd got out of the car shouting and screaming. And it suddenly made me think about this character and how he reacts to things. And I started doing a little bit of research because it's such a feel-good thing. And it's unlike any other TV show that I'd watched before. It sort of makes you stop and look at your own life. And so I found myself doing a bit of research. I'm a journalist, it's sort of what I do, and found that an awful lot of the themes of that were related to what's become known as the positive psychology movement. And there we are, there was the idea for a book. I thought, hmm, that's the kind of thing you could turn into a book. And so I did. (laughs) 
And, uh, and do you think, Lucy, that before you'd watched Ted Lasso, I mean, you know, I've just watched it in the past week. I've binge watched it, actually. Absolutely fabulous. Before you'd watched it, how would your reaction have been different to that situation? Do you think it would have been? It's such a good question, isn't it? Because hopefully we all sort of, as we grow up, and I'm still growing up at 62, you try and hope to hope to be a bit better, don't you? Well, I think that I probably might have not been quite so kind. I think this TV show has forced me to think about kindness because it has a message. It's a silly comedy show, but it has this message of kindness and it has a message of positivity. I would love to think that I would have got out the car in that instance and been automatically nice. And maybe I would have done. Maybe it didn't take a TV show, but I think it stopped and forced me to think. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think I've been the same, actually, since I've watched it. I have been thinking more. I don't know about you, Susie. I've been thinking about it during the day when situations have been arising at work and things and I have been thinking what would Ted Lasso do actually and having read your book as well I mean just extraordinary really mm. it's got under your skin hasn't it same it has. me, see? <laughs> <laughs> got to be really honest I was quite skeptical when you told me about it I thought oh no not a football theme I don't think I can take any football but actually I sat there for the first episode and I was hooked so for me to watch a series not only comedy which I love comedy but to watch it about football was was a bit weird but fantastic at the same time yes it, to me it's it's a show that's not about football and I'm skeptical about football because it's just not my thing but the thing that's interesting is that when you try and train a, a team is that you have to use a lot of motivation and you have to use a lot of leadership skills because you're dealing with people aren't you so actually yeah. it's not about football it's about how we react to other human beings. How do you encourage a team? How do we all work together? So it's the principles of, I I imagine every single football manager, they have to think about these things, but we can apply those principles to ourselves in everyday life. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And before you wrote the book, What Would Ted Lasso Do?, Did you read lots of self-help books yourself? There feels like there's been a lot of research gone into that book. Well, I'd love to tell you, yes, that I was, you know, a huge self-help fan. But the truth is I'm not. You know, I haven't read tons of them. But this definitely set me on a path. There was a lot of research because you can't write a book about something and sort of not... You have to back it up with something. Um, It set me on a path for sure. But I, I wasn't before. So much of it makes perfect common sense and you think, oh... Yeah, I can see why that works. You must have had so many revelationary moments writing this book. Yes, I think the most revelationary moment for me was the discovery of a book by Viktor Frankl. Loads of other people have known him, but I'm slow to every party. But he was very famous um, psychologist who was sent off to the Auschwitz concentration camp. And he was already working on a theory about how we react. So to come back to the idea of how do we react when bad things happen to us? And Viktor Frankl wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he was sort of already working on this theory, got sent to Auschwitz, found himself in the worst of all possible circumstances and noticed around him that some people survived better than others. And who were they? 
what was it that separated those who did better than others in horrible circumstance? And he discovered that it was the people that held on to a sense of hope, who held on to a sense of purpose, held on a, a sense of, of meaning to their lives still. And he himself adopted that himself. And they tended to do so much better. And so how does that relate to Ted Lasso? Ted when he arrives in London, he has an entire football stadium of fans calling him a wanker. He's got a, a boss who wants to trip him up. He's got a wife who wants to divorce him. And yet he has this affability. He chooses to react positively. And that for me was a very fundamental piece of information, seeing how he does it. And then adopting that for myself and that was revelationary to me that particular piece and that information is out there for lots of other people I was just slow to the party when you were younger how did you get into journalism to begin with how did that happen oh I've always wanted to do it so when I was at school we were doing O levels they called it then and I was sent as a sort of intern to the Watford Observer because I grew up there and I was sent to interview well I sat in the corner like a mouse but the person was Eric Morecambe now how gorgeous was that wow so I witnessed this lovely interview taking place so there's something there's a buzz about a newsroom I wish I could say it was all about the writing the love of writing came later but I loved journalism I, I just like people. I love people. I think people do fascinating and interesting things. And that's at the heart of journalism, a curiosity, I suppose. You moved to Los Angeles in 1995. How did that come about? So I was working on a newspaper called Today, now defunct, loving oh, yes. it, actually. And I was in my 30s, single. I had an Australian friend who'd just moved out here and she said, come on out. There's lots of stories to be written. But why not? <laughs> so I did. It was a sort of an adventure. I handed in my notice and a lovely salaried job with expenses <laughs> and um and arrived here and it, it has been really fun you know it just shows how old I am but when I arrived here there were not many British journalists writing for the uh, UK newspapers there's a lot of very interesting people doing a lot of creative work here and you just wrap it up and sell it as a story and people were interested. And I, I think you raised a really good point about creativity. We hear all about the films and the creativity on the films, but you're right. There's an underworld, isn't there, if I can say that, or a parallel world of yeah. people in Los Angeles, Hollywood or America. They are very creative and very entrepreneurial. Yes, there's definitely, I mean, you know, to come back to the thought of positivity, there's definitely a positivity to American culture that I've found. And I like that. And the novels were, I mean, they were a little while ago, but I got to interview a lot of the children of celebrities. And quite often, this is slightly not positive, but there were a lot of them that were very sort of hurt and damaged. And where do they go when you've got a really, really famous celebrity father, mother, and a lot of them hanging around. And those were what I turned into novels. Yeah. I think that yeah. must be incredibly difficult, actually, because everyone has expectations of you or ideas about you if your parent is incredibly famous. But you've interviewed lots of, of these famous people. What's that like? Is it terrifying or is it just different every single time? It is different every single time. But the most terrifying thing that has changed is the technology. 
uh, because I used to do all my interviews with like 10 recorders in front of me because you get an hour with a celebrity and you know they're not going to give you another hour when when your your machine hasn't worked so that's the most terrifying part it's just making conversation isn't it I will sometimes feel it's a bit like bragging but here we are you know I'm lucky enough to have sat across a table in the Beverly Hills Polo Lounge with Amy Adams I've been to the Barney Greengrasses and, and sat there with Reese Witherspoon and he's just sitting there one-to-one and trying to not make a fool of yourself eating a salad and throwing it down your front and talking to these fascinating really incredibly intelligent thoughtful women it's so easy I think if you're an actress to be seen in a one-dimensional light but all of them to have got to where they are have done some pretty interesting moves to get where they've got to and have things to say that are hugely politically conscious environmentally conscious and so they're sort of interesting the more boring ones are when a film that's coming out and you end up in a table with 10 other journalists sitting around the table and you've only got 15 minutes and someone from I don't know some silly magazine says you know and what's your favorite color and and you think oh no we've only got 15 minutes don't ask them that you know (laughs) It's so true. That is so true. That is brilliant. Darn, that's knocked my next question out of the ballpark. (laughs) (laughs) I've also been looking at your website, which is lucybroadbent.net, if anyone's interested in having a look. And it, uh, it says somewhere on there, the story that you're most proud of resulted in a change in the legal age of marriage in Kentucky. And there's a really interesting article that you wrote about young women of 12, I think one one was, a 12-year-old marrying a 74-year-old. That must have been fascinating to research and to interview these girls, really. That was an extraordinary thing to have found myself doing. I worked for Marie Claire magazine, which used to do a lot of reportage, and they heard about the legal age in different states here there's a different legal age when you can get married and there was no requirement in Kentucky. Around there is Appalachia which is very beautiful country but it's very poor and I think it's very easy to forget um, when we look at America and you know mostly one sees it as this very prosperous country and there it's their poverty is as bad as anything you know i i've traveled a bit but the poverty was as bad as anything i ever saw in africa no running water no toilets inside the house people living in wooden shacks and one line of electricity coming into a house and you think wow the height of luxury in that that neck of the woods is a double wide trailer and really I think that personally shocked me but I spent quite a lot of time there trying to find these kids who get married really young the longest piece of research I think I've ever done actually and I couldn't find any couldn't find any and then I interviewed a headmaster of a school told him what I was looking for and he said first of all he thought I was a joke and he had to call me back to check I wasn't you know, someone making a joke about it. And he said, yeah, no, we get lots of that here. You should come and stay in my house. So a really sweet man. So I ended up staying in his house because, of course, as a school teacher, he wanted to keep kids in school. But he was seeing young girls, 12, 13, 
getting married, then they get pregnant, then they drop out of school. There was nothing stopping them getting married. And and it was like that was the expected thing. All they wanted age 12 was to get married. And so that example you cited of a 12-year-old, they were happy to talk to me. This was not something unusual to talk about. This was nothing that they were ashamed of or hiding away. I chatted with this lovely old man he was a lovely old man he was 74 he said yeah I knew her grandmother yeah I thought she'd be a very sweet wife she's very sweet I remember her being born as far as he was concerned there was nothing wrong with it and so that was very shocking to me yeah we actually interviewed an entrepreneur who now lives in the UK called Danye Shell. and she came from Appalachia and she talked about that as well that it was just Mm. another world Now, Lucy, another sort of favourite thing of yours is travel. Travel is something you say that you absolutely love. So you've written a lot about all your travels and you even include your family in your travels, don't you, as well? Yes, I was lucky enough to be travel editor of Hello magazine for many years. Loved it. I I developed a bit of a fear of flying, which wasn't very helpful in that regard. But I've got over that now. And (laughs) but, you know, it's fun to travel. Who doesn't love it? How did you develop a fear of travel? Did you have an incident in the air or was it just something that crept up on you? No, it was having children. I've spoken to other mums have talked to me about it. I I know others. I've been on aeroplanes all around the world, Vietnam, Africa, the kind where you can sort of, you know, see the ground through the floorboards (laughs) underneath you. The ones with steam coming out, you know, not a problem ever. Then I had children and I suddenly started getting absolutely terrified of flying. And it was explained to me because I consulted someone about it because it did get really bad at one stage. And uh, it's something to do with hormones and having children and, you know, wanting to protect them. It was when I was traveling with children. And now that they're all grown up, it's sort of gone away. So I suppose that proves the theory. Lucy, I wanted to touch on mental health. Going back to Ted Lasso, I must touch on something in your book in particular about toxic masculinity and the way men grow up and this culture. It was a really fascinating part of your book. Mm -hmm. So I know you have two sons, don't you? I have two sons. And I just wanted to see if you'd learnt from that as well, because I certainly did from just reading your book. Yes, it's such a fascinating subject. So that show did make me think. Uh, That got me onto the research track. There's a bit in the show where Ted says to one of the football players, you need to woman up. And he says, I think you mean man up. (laughs) And he says, well, look how far that's got you. No, we mean woman up. I started looking into it. And I think that younger generation of men, so my son knew all about it, age 24. He knew all about toxic masculinity. This is a phrase that he had come across and he said, yeah, mum, it's really bad. There's some horrendous statistics about male suicide. Women are more likely to see a therapist if they're struggling, more likely than a man is. A man will bottle it up, carry on until it reaches a point where they can't cope. And that's why the suicide uh, statistic is higher on men than it is in women so what creates that there's this macho culture even in a greater or lesser degree I think most men come across this idea that boys don't cry Mm. that's 
books because that's a, it's a really good emotion. You should be able to cry. Who says you can't cry? And there's this terrible stigma for men if you express your feelings. It's perceived as a weakness. Now, why is that? There's something wrong about that. And so when you are raising boys, you've got to encourage them. As a society, we can change that. It's how we raise boys. The statistics speak for themselves. We're doing something wrong in the way we raise boys, if that's what ends up happening. This show highlights it beautifully because although it's a show that's not about football, but is about football, we're better than a male-dominated locker room for a football team where that toxic masculinity is absolutely rife. And they highlight it all the way through the show. There's a coach was fired I won't give too much yes. away but in case no one's no, seen the show That's because right. because yes. it is delicious and lovely to watch but there's a sort of guy and he's sexist and I mean he's obnoxious and then he comes along with this new coach Ted Lasso who likes watching rom-coms and is <laughs> uh, you know as we used to perhaps say is in touch with his feminine side is it wrong to say that I don't know but he's a man who doesn't mind crying who doesn't mind expressing his feelings really exciting thing was the writers of the show the, and the cast of the show were invited to the White House to meet President Biden because President Biden has got this mental health initiative going on and he could see what they were doing with the show and invited the cast members there so the idea of putting mental health into a tv show i just think that's brilliant so what's going to happen next after this wonderful book that you've written i god help you i do not want you crashing another car but what other things are you going to do <laughs> Well, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? I am thinking that because I'm looking, thinking uh, two ideas. I have actually been approached to do a book for business on Ted Lasso. So you can see how a lot of the principles can apply. It's about leadership and how you could, instead of doing the psychology, you could do how to make a business grow, how to build teams, how to manage teams. Uh, you could turn it into a business book. And I am toying with that idea. There's a sort of thing in the TV show where they have this sign that says believe, which in psychology terms is self-efficacy. But you can take that principle, apply it to so many things. So if you're building yeah. a business, you know, you can believe it. And in many respects, I've actually adopted that myself. So this is a book that I published myself. So that was a journey. I had two novels out traditionally published and I had this sort of thing thinking you know it's got to have a publisher and I had a publisher who was interested and he said I wouldn't be able to get a book out in the time for the third season but he said if you self-published you could do that and so I actually have a Ted Lasso Believe poster and I kept saying to myself, because let me tell you, I made every single mistake you could possibly do. And what's really interesting, I kept all these things. I kept, oh, no, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. You can do this. You can do this. I had a man who ran off with my money. I paid him to be an editor. He ran off with my money. No, no. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, no. uh, and then I'm new to social media. And OK, the social media. I've got to work this out. You could do it. You could do it. And so I think that, you know, this belief in yourself, I applied it to myself and the, the extraordinary thing about it is that now I, I do have some traditional book publishers who are interested in it because it's selling one doesn't want to boast about sales but it's an Amazon bestseller now that to me is all right okay okay there's something to this you just have to believe in yourself 
it sounds so syrupy, but it, there's yeah. something to it. <laughs> Lucy, that's just it's absolutely perfect for this interview. And for any woman who wants to do something a bit different, obviously writing is your thing. But if you were to sort of sit in front of a classroom or to give a talk to women that want to change perspective, what would be one of your sort of one-liners? Well, belief would be the one thing. Uh, it's sort of easier said than done. So I think you do have to sort of convince yourself. You do have to sort of think about it. The thing that I have learnt on this path is that we live in an extraordinary age with social media. This is my most recent revelation is really, is that the gatekeepers are gone. There's been a democratisation that's happened with the internet. If you want to bring out a song, you can do that. If you want to bring out a podcast, you can do that. You want to bring out a book, you can do that. You don't need to be endorsed by anybody anymore. You don't need the backing. You can just do it. And so that takes a little bit more self-belief. Lucy, it's been fantastic to talk to you. It really yeah, has. I, honestly, yeah. what, a, what a lovely, lovely talk we've had with you. You've just been tremendous and, and I love your zest. I'm sure Ted Lesso has learnt from you, not the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, there have been moments where I'm wondering whether Warner Brothers should be paying me or Apple TV. <laughs> I've done a lot of publicity for them. <laughs> Well, watch this space. All I can say is I think it's going to be great. Lucy Broadbent, thank you so much for being on Women Making Waves. We absolutely enjoyed it. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, and thank you so much for inviting me and such fun. It's just lovely. <laughs> You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Our guest today is former BBC News senior controller and executive editor of BBC Politics, Katie Searle. Katie has recently become partner of the communications and public affairs consultancy, Foretold. Katie joined the BBC in 1990. Now, we've got to admit to you, Katie, that while researching you before today, it's come to our attention that you're one of those women who has probably ticked or kicked many, many goals into touch in your career. Uh, Katie's impressive roles at the BBC include three years as deputy editor of BBC News at 6 and 10, worked on Today, The World Tonight and on World Service Output as well. Now, before that, Katie was head of BBC Westminster. And before that, again, her career has covered a remarkable job journey from producer, researcher, assistant editor of the Today programme to recent years senior controller programmes and commissioning to name but a few. And of course, is senior controller BBC News. Welcome, Katie. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Recently, I met you at the International Women's Day Breakfast Seminar and the title for this event was Women and Risk-Taking. Now, at the beginning of the audience, I don't know if you remember this, Katie, but the audience were asked to stand up if they had taken risks. And I cannot remember if the panellists, which was you, of course, and the speakers were obliged to do that. I cannot remember if we did that. I was so interested that they'd asked the audience before actually listening to the panellists that I, anyway, I stood up because I, I think I do take risks. But I want to know, Katie, are you a risk taker? Um, I think I would say yes to that. I think really it depends, you know, lots of words have done lots of definitions. And so I think if you ask my friends, 
if there was a cliff in front of me, would I jump off it? I think I would jump off it. I'm always really looking for the next opportunity. And, you know, so to go back to the definition of risks, it's not always about jumping off a cliff, but it is about pushing yourself forward. And I think that's my definition of risk taking is not sitting back and thinking, okay, this will do because of whatever reason you want to sit back. And that can be a range of things. It can be a lack of self-confidence. It can be being too frightened to speak out. It can be a fear of failure. And I think that day, actually, Susie, we talked quite a lot, or I talked quite a lot about a fear of failure. Mm. And I think that is a really important phrase around risk-taking and what you're going to do with that risk-taking and your total fear of failure. And I think particularly, it's a, my experience anyway, is that that's a particular thing for women as well. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking when, when you said that, actually, Katie. I think women are far more timid about making making fool of themselves I suppose um, stepping up and maybe looking silly and I think it's it's such a shame well for me I think I definitely got bolder in my 30s so I wouldn't want to give the impression that I ran into the BBC thinking you know age 19 that I knew everything it was completely the opposite you know when I started there I'd, I'd got there because I'd applied and applied and applied and at that time they had it was essentially a secretarial pool and you could you could go in and pass a typing test. And because I'd been rubbish at French A-level, I was chucked off French A-level and I was made to do typing at my college. And I used to spend most of the time smoking in the smoking hut and not very much time <laughs> typing. Um, but luckily, I did enough typing to pass the BBC test by one mark. I remember it so clearly. I got 101 points and the pass mark was 100. And um, I really wasn't very good at typing, but I just about <laughs> got the touch typing nailed. And, and so lucky for me, I was, you know, introduced to the BBC and I was, uh, so I had to go in for an interview and I was given a job as a, um, I thought, grandly titled radio production assistant, which was basically a sectarial kind of typing up contracts. But for me, it was the most exciting thing. And at that time, I was I was terribly frightened about it. You know, I was, the BBC was, you know, the absolute sun in my life. You know, that was where I was going to get to one day. And to get there at 19 was completely not my expectation at all. <laughs> and I went in and literally, apart from the other production assistants, literally everyone I met had been either at Cambridge or Oxford. And they're lovely people and lots of them are, you know, very, very good friends of mine, terrific people, but had a very different background to mine. So I was very fearful going in and it was only really in later life that I managed to take on the fear of failure. When you say you were very fearful, obviously you were fearful, but it didn't put you off having a go. So when you say you didn't go to university, does, am I right in saying you didn't go to university? I remember you saying at the, the talk that you, you skip university, that wasn't for you. Sometimes I always think when you go to university, it's a, it's a, a level of confidence, isn't it? It's pushing you up. But for you and many, many women, university was not for them and you had that fear but you still moved forward so what what's behind that what's behind this oh I'm stepping out of my comfort zone have you always been like that I don't really know I think probably if you spoke to my sister she would say I was always like that and I think she always says you're the most determined person I know and I think that's probably <laughs> that word is is quite a good word for me 
And I was really weird, actually, when I was little, or kind of in my early teenage years. And again, if you spoke to friends of mine um, who knew me at the time then, they were slightly baffled because at age 13, I was doing voluntary shifts at Kingston Hospital Radio in Surrey, <laughs> um, going around to all the sick patients, poor things, and asking them for requests on our station and then going back and doing all the work there. And um, on a Tuesday evening, my dad used to drop me at the hospital and pick me up a couple of hours later. So that was 13. And at 16, I was working again, just voluntarily at London's Capital Radio, which I thought was just the most cool station on earth. (laughs) And by chance, I lived in Isha in Surrey at the time. And so did two of the biggest DJs. Kid Jensen, you'll probably remember, he was a very big name. Um, back in the 80s, mm-hmm. and um, and a DJ called Mick Brown. And they used to get the same train as me. <laughs> and so I got to know them. They were so nice. And I used to go up every morning and say, hello. And um, we used to have a little chat. And then I got off, and they went off to off on to London. And so, I, you know, I was doing work experience there. And then I was just determined, really. I just thought, I don't want a boring job. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote to every station and I've still got literally a box full in my loft of rejection letters but the one (laughs) positive letter that came back was the typing pool so thank god I was rubbish at French really because uh, (laughs) (laughs) that caught me and I didn't smoke too much Uh, you know that got me started so yes and I think once you're in there you know I think being also being surrounded by people who had a much kind of more deep and comprehensive education than me I kind of felt like I didn't want to be beat, you know. And Susie, I can't remember if I told the story when we met, but there was a particular moment. I'd been at the World Service two or three years where I started and I kept going for promotions and I kept being beaten and I was getting terribly down about it. And the boss I had at the time said to me, oh, I think you should leave the BBC and go and study Sino-Soviet relations. (laughs) And I thought it was like the weirdest thing ever (laughs) because I don't know anything about... Soviet Union as it was then or China and or let alone their relationship and um, I thought that's absolutely not for me I'm not giving up this job which I absolutely love I'm just going to keep going and I found ways around it and I did once I'd got kind of on the next part of the ladder the promotions kept coming which was terrific and I but I don't also I don't want to you know, give the impression that it was a breeze. It absolutely was not. And I think one of the things I always say to people that ask me about how to get on in in my particular industry is I think you've really got to love what you do. And I think that's true of any industry. And so reading about the news or current affairs or, you know, later in, in life for me, politics, didn't feel in any sense like going to work. It was just something that I was really fascinated in. And broadcasting, I just thought was like really cool because it was, you know, when I was younger, it was, it was about pop music. And when I was older, it was about news, you know. And, and so that real interest and deep commitment to doing something that you genuinely feel really excited about, I think just gives you a huge advantage mm. you know so I was, I was talking to my son this morning he's 16 and struggling through his GCSEs and whatever you decide to do just make sure you're interested in it you know because otherwise you're like well who wants to get out of bed and do something that they can't stand yeah. you know both of you are two broadcasters and you'll understand that passion for it you know when people say you know what would you tell your 16 year old self yeah I would just yeah I just still been thinking about that recently and I just think it's always to just don't doubt yourself and also realize that other people that you're with are kind of broadly the same 
Mm. You know, yes. don't you think? You know, that yeah. you, you realise that you're kind yes. of terrified that someone else is more clever than you, and then you have a conversation, and they might be, you know, clever in you in all sorts of ways, but there might be other things that you're good at. You know, yeah. and you just ha- end up having yeah. a conversation, and just say, oh, okay, well, you're just the same as me. We're just all people, yeah. and and once you realise that, that's okay, mm. and and then you're not frightened, and you're not frightened of saying what you don't believe. You know, so when I went to Westminster, for example, when I was um, about 10 years ago when I started at BBC Westminster. I knew, you know, little bits about politics. I didn't know a huge amount. And, and I actually just wore that as slightly as a badge of pride because I think, you know, there is a real need for clarity in our broadcasting and our storytelling. And I'd say to the team there, sometimes they were broadcasting to themselves too much, you know, with that kind of knowledge of insider detail. And actually once, you know, again, as broadcasters, you chair mm. this, once mm-hmm. you've lost your audience, well, you know, you're not doing your job. So I, you know, I went with a kind of, well, I don't understand that. Tell me about it. Explain to me. No, I still don't understand it. Tell me again. And I really enjoyed that part of the job. And I think it, it was quite a popular style, I think, I hope. Um, because, you know, people mm. just sort of warmed to that sense of, oh, OK, we need to work on our storytelling here. You know, over the years, I can't pretend to say that I didn't actually, you know, perhaps take in too much detail myself. But I always tried to... Uh, remember you know the audience from that perspective and I had a phrase that said from the sofa so I could sort of you know if I'm watching the news from the sofa and I've sat down after a busy day you know doing my job or cooking for my kids I don't want to have to think oh god I wish I could you know look up the encyclopedia of politics on that day I want someone to tell me what the story is and that's that's really important and um, you know it turns out it was quite quite a good method. I completely agree. Looking back, because you've done so many roles, what was your favourite role, do you think? Because you've done really loads of things across the BBC, which I think is great as a senior controller, because you understand how it works from the ground up, really. But what what was your favourite job, do you think? Um, I think my favourite job was the job at Westminster, because it was, as I said just now, it was, you know, it was a whole new world for me um, and you stepped into this kind of incredible part of government well it's obviously the kind of key to how governments work and learning that and really being the main person for contact for all the political parties and learning how to deal with those intense conversations working out how you're going to get through them um, how you were going to reach a common aim for the BBC primarily, but also understanding all the positions of all the people that you were talking to, to understand how to get to you know, a good outcome. That was tremendous. And also, really, the team down at Westminster, when you're all in this kind of wonderful kind of world of, of such interesting policy areas and, and internal politics of the parties, that everyone you know, jumps out of bed really in the morning and just says, right, what's going to happen today? And I was lucky that I joined <laughs> Westminster in 2014, so just before the Scotland referendum, and left just over a year ago. And I mean, wow, what a time. You know, it was eight years of fast and fury. You know, I've had three elections, two referendums, you know, the COVID, uh, Prime Minister that nearly died, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it was an incredibly intense period. But genuinely, I can say, hand on heart, for eight years, I used to jump out of bed and think, aren't I lucky? Uh, off I go. And on a Sunday night, I used to feel excited that I could go to work. 
And I think that's really lucky. You know, I think that's really lucky. Katie, I'm sure I've heard this where you say some programs are brutal to work on. Now, as much as you jump out of bed, how do you control the, I'm not going to put words into your mouth, it's not anxiety, but how do you control that fear of it going wrong? Um, I think perspective is really important um, on those moments. And, you know, sometimes when you're really, really tired and the pressures come in and, you know, especially if there's been a mistake made, that's always the worst, you know, and especially if it's your mistake, you know, and that's really, I would struggle with that. And it would really sit on you. And there's so there's a couple of examples I'll just bring in for probably my most intense period was when I was on the Today programme. And I can't quite remember the dates, but I was, I think, in my late 20s. And that was the biggest and most fast kind of learning experience I had because, you know, I was relatively young. I, you know, was working with presenters like John Humphreys, who is, you know, incredibly well known. I'd grown up watching him read the news. You know, it was just extraordinary to go into that. And I was responsible for editing a programme overnight in the the middle of the night when you're just at your lowest, you know, you're just exhausted. And I used to find that really, really difficult to keep going. And there was always a really low point at about 4am when you just were kind of really run out of fuel. And then by the time the programme went on at 6am, you know, the adrenaline really punched in. And so, you you know, you were ready to go and kind of collapse at at nine o'clock. And that was really intense. And then the other one that comes to mind with, with that prompt you've given me is on the 10 o'clock news when I was editing the 6 and 10 o'clock news, which was, you know, I said I love Westminster and that's true, but editing the 6 and 10 o'clock news is, is a really close second. It was just the most mm. extraordinary privileged job. But missing a story, as any journalist um, would know, is the worst feeling in the world. <laughs> and what would happen is you put out the 10 and... Um, get to bed half 11 midnight wake up to hear the headlines in the morning and if everyone else was reporting a story that you turned down or hadn't noticed or you know just decided not to run for whatever reason uh, it definitely the worst feeling in the world you know just was awful um, and of course you realize as you get older that actually just things like that happen and you know but it's a, a terrible feeling and this huge feeling of responsibility and so I mean how do you get over it you pick it yourself up and go again you know uh, yeah. the next day is you're going to get the story right and you know again it when we talk about determination and um, that's definitely something that I just would feel if I had a problem it would just make me double down and think, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. And I'm going to read more. I'm going to understand more. I'm going to really consider it. And have I done everything to make sure that that mistake doesn't happen again? When you started, you said you started effectively as a secretary and you have worked your way up to the top, really. Is that still a route that someone could follow if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I'd love to be, I'd love to be in the news. I'd love to work for the BBC. Is that still a route or do they have to go to train to be a journalist and all the rest of it nowadays? I mean, it is, I definitely think it's a route. And I think, you know, go back to what I said earlier, I genuinely, and I really, I hope this doesn't sound too naive. And, you know, I hope I'm just not looking at it through too many rose-coloured spectacles. But I think that if you are willing to really put the work in, and that means not just turn up and do the hours, it means really, really do the work that's required outside those particular hours. You know, it's, it's the reading, it's the in my terms you know it's it's the reading all the news it's listening to all the competition watching the competition thinking about what developments are coming in the industry etc and if you're going to do that i think you can kind of do anything 
you know, and I, I, I genuinely think that. I mean, look, journalism training is great, and, you know, if you want to do that, that's fantastic. And, you know, in many ways, I wish I'd done that. But I applied for loads of different courses. Um, I didn't go to university, but I did try and get on BBC schemes and other courses, and I got rejected from all of them. <laughs> so, I mean, they're very hard to get on, you know, they're incredibly competitive, mm. and, and rightly so. They recruit very, very good people. I suppose what I mean by that is I just think one shouldn't just think well, that's that then. That if you have a passion for something, you've just absolutely got to go for it and, and really, really put your head down and, and just don't take no for an answer, really. There's another feather in your cap here amongst many, many things that you negotiated and oversaw an interview with President Obama and you travelled with Prime Minister Theresa May to China. When you've achieved these notable moments, do you sort of pinch yourself? Do you have to go away somewhere and think gosh, did I really do that? Or do you think, actually, yes, I can do that. It's fine. But you must have to pinch yourself sometimes. Yeah, I think sometimes you do. I mean, I think particularly the Westminster years, actually, and this sounds odd to say it out loud really like this, but you do kind of get used to it um, because every day you're often, well, not every day, but you're often in the middle of conversations with people that, you know, perhaps you'd not ever dream you'd meet, you know, or being yeah. in the Prime Minister's flat or when we went to China I did a trip on the Prime Minister's plane it was a a trade trip to China and um, as you know the Prime Minister would do many trips during the year and I would go on one if I could do it I'd I'd try and do one because I just thought it was it was really really good for contacts but also understanding the story etc and yeah I mean it was an incredible privilege you know they close the roads when you land when you're in the Prime Minister's (laughs) entourage you know you then close all the roads in China and you see things that you just would never see in, in everyday life it's extraordinary and the Obama one yeah I mean that was god that was a product of several conversations and yeah I did negotiate some of it I've got to say it was a bit of a group effort but actually being in the room with him and I've I've got I was going to say I'm ashamed to say actually I'm not ashamed to say I'm proud to say I've got a picture of me and him on my mantelpiece and being in the room before we did the interview with him and the Secret Service being everywhere and him coming in and then having a chat with him afterwards was one of the greatest privileges of my life. You know, it was incredible to meet someone like that, but also just a real window on things you just see in dramas. Yeah. You know, I'm just watching The West Wing again mm. at the moment. <laughs> and, and, and it's so funny. It's like, God, yeah, you know, it's probably like that, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, oh, God, it's an extraordinary privilege. And that's why journalism is, is such a fun and incredible career, because you just get to see things that you just wouldn't do in normal life. And women in journalism. I'm assuming that over the time that you spent at the BBC, there are now far more women. That's what it appears to be like anyway from the outside. Far more women involved in the delivery of the news than there used to be. Yes, definitely. I haven't got the figures, but I think there's been a huge growth. And it was one of the things I was proud of doing actually at Westminster was that I massively increased the number of women that we employed both on air and off air uh, in the newsroom. And that's not because... I think, the, you know, they were any better or worse than the men particularly. It's just that I think there was a tendency at Westminster to go towards men, you know, even in Parliament. When I first walked through Parliament, you just feel the presence of how male it is. I mean, even now, you know, very, very much so. It's just men in suits. I mean, it's obviously it's changed hugely and the number of women MPs has, has hugely, hugely increased unrecognisably from, from even just a short time ago. But it was a very male-dominated part of the world, and that was true also for the BBC. And I don't know, I think, look, 
obviously when we interview people for jobs I think women do have a different perspective to to men when they interview women I just think that's just a natural part of being a woman and I also think that my background means that I try very hard anyway to see other things in people not just qualifications and it's really important to me that you you know you see that whole person uh, rather than just what's on the paper absolutely yeah it's it's something i i don't know if you've watched this and we can keep this in or not but i, I i've been uh, watching ted lasso do you watch have you watched ted lasso katie oh no oh, i haven't gosh. actually but i've I, everyone keeps telling me i need yeah. to it, yeah. and, well some of the things that have come out of this there's some very interesting themes and messages in in ted lasso and one of them was be curious and believe in yourself and the curious for me is is something i think that you had even at 19 because i do not remember at 19 feeling that confident to talk on the train to Kid jensen or mike brown as you're going to work and saying oh hi you know i think i would i think crawled into a corner somewhere knowing the the enormity of those two people that you were going to work with and and their sort of credibility in the radio world and and so for me if I asked you now, if you were talking to younger students at schools, what would you say to, to younger women? I mean, I could say to younger men and women, but I'm, I'm going to concentrate on women. I'm proud of it. But what would you say to, if you were looking at a, a, a young young woman in a classroom now, what would you say to them? Um, I think it's that fear thing, isn't it? I think, you know, just get up and do it. You know, obviously you've got to be careful. And when I look back and those poor guys, I probably probably thought, oh, God, here she is again. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, try, I try. I mean, I was really young. So, um, you know, I try not to be too irritating. But I think also, as I've got older, that I've worked with a lot of well-known people. And I think without exception, people that I've worked with are continuously kind of approached by people in, you know, in public areas. And without exception, they're just actually quite flattered. Mm and think oh wasn't that nice you know how nice of them to come and speak to me and I think that's you know I think that's really important and also ask ask for help I think that's the other thing is that I've again it's it's something that I've always done because it was done for me is that I think probably without exception I hope I hope I haven't turned down too many people is that I've seen pretty much everyone that's ever asked to Mm. see me and and there's a lot of people just because of my job title you know people want to come and see me and chat about work and how to get into the BBC and and I think that's giving that back is really important. Just one final question Katie, your work-life balance (laughs) what's that like? Do you manage to strike a good balance? Um, Yeah, I mean not all the time I think again just to kind of touch back on the Westminster days which is the most relevant to that question I mean the work-life balance was there wasn't any, you know, in that I would really start working at 6am and I'd often not finish till midnight but I mean that you know our, our days of working electronically are you know well bedded in now aren't they so I yes. you know it wouldn't be that I'd be in the office until then but I would work until very late and um, and I think I don't know I you know I sort of sometimes feel guilty about that as a mum and uh, although my boys are always very sweet and sort of say you know it's fine and they thought my job was exciting and they kind of didn't mind <laughs> uh, you know I've got to say that I'm sure that's not true of all the times I was taking a call on a Saturday afternoon when we were out but um, I suppose what I'd say in summary to that is that it's you know I've moved on from Westminster and my work-life balance has changed 
I probably couldn't have kept doing what I was doing for very much longer. I did it for eight years and working like that was incredibly intense. And actually I was really addicted to it and slowing down is then difficult to come, you know, get used yeah. to as well. Yeah. But now I appreciate, well, I, I think I didn't realise how little work-life balance I had until I stopped doing it. So, you know, it's it's recognising that you probably want to get off the train and, and reset a little bit. It's been really enlightening talking to you and I hope everybody listening today will take something out of this because it's very important to be talking to women like you, Katie. So I thank you very much from both of us that you were able to join us on Women Making Waves today. Thank you. Fantastic. It's incredibly kind of you to have us. Thanks so much. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks go to our guests, Katie Searle and Lucy Broadbent. We're always on the lookout to feature women living extraordinary lives. So please do contact us if you know of someone we should be talking to. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves. And you can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. See you next time. Bye.